I think we need to do a context catch-up for Jonah 4 because we enter the story close to the end. Spoiler alert, this is not a story with a tidy ending. It's a story that ends with a question, as you saw. It's like we get to the end and we say, that's it. You know, kind of like you go to a movie and it's not a movie that you know there will be a sequel to and it just kind of ends in this random spot and you're like, wait, what? There's a reason the story ends this way because it is really not a story about Jonah. It's more of a story about God and what God is like and it's a story about us. And we are meant to find ourselves in this story, to work our way through, to discover how this story is going to end or more accurately continue. When our kids were little, my husband and I told made-up stories at night after we read to them where they were central characters. And some nights it was a challenge to come up with the next installment to Tony the Elephant or the Adventure in Magicland. And it all, I learned early on that it really helped if you left yourself set up for the next night. You had a place to start when you um, took at it again the next day. Well, Jonah is like that. Hopefully before we leave today, you will find yourself in some place in this story and be able to continue on with it. So to recap, Jonah hears God ask him to go and say something to the Ninevites, to the outsiders, the people of Assyria, um, of Nineveh in Assyria. It's a bad place. The news coming out of there is awful. There are atrocious things happening. These people do not deserve what God might have to offer. No way. Jonah does not like this word of the Lord to him. He wants nothing to do with the Assyrians. He's got a good picture of who they are. He's got some labels in place. So he goes the opposite direction. He runs away from this word. He wants to put as much distance from it between him and it as he possibly can. He does not want this mission. He is not going to accept it. Well, he gets on a boat, there's a storm, looks like everybody's going to die. And Jonah is kind of like, oh, I think this is about me. So he says, throw me overboard, I think that'll take care of it. And they're like, to their credit, they're like, no, 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 we can't do that. But it gets worse, and they really are afraid for their lives, so they do. And it quiets down. And a big fish comes and swallows Jonah, and as we are told in the story... Jonah somehow stays alive in this fish for three whole days. I mean, this is the point where the kids really get interested. They're like, what? I wonder what that fish had to eat before they got Jonah. What do I like in there? How did it smell? You know, it's a great part of the story. And then Jonah, while he's down there, whatever's going on down there, he has an epiphany. And he prays. And the text says that the Lord commanded the fish, and the fish vomited him out on dry land. Oh, gross, kids say at this point. Yuck. Well, I agree. That's pretty, pretty gross. Well, Jonah hears a second time from God. Go. Say what I want you to say. 
This time he goes. And it's a message of destruction that he preaches in Nineveh. The Ninevites take him seriously. They engage in some serious repentance. And then we we hear in the text, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. So this is where we pick up the story. Jonah is pissed. And I use that word intentionally. And he has some words with God. Now, having weathered the worst part of the teen years with three kids, our youngest is 17, I know this Jonah. I recognize this overly dramatic, I know it all, but needs to happen because I know everything, pouty, operating in the extremes, Jonah. I would rather die then live like this. Take away my life. Anybody else recognize this behavior? It starts pretty young. God does a brilliant job of dealing with this not his best self, Jonah. He ignores most of his childishness and then asks a question. Have you any right to be angry? Jonah doesn't want to hear it. He feels, he wants to feel his righteous indignation and anger. Nineveh deserves to burn. No way, no how do they deserve compassion. His anger is not without merit. But it so clouds his vision that I don't think he even hears God's question to him. And so he goes out, sets up camp east of the city, and he pouts. Perhaps he thinks his big display of emotion will help God see the error of his soft stance and merciful turn. So God sends object lesson two. This time it's not a fish. It's a plant, a vine. For those of you growing zucchini or squash in your garden, it's not hard for you to imagine a vine springing up overnight. And Jonah is grateful. Man, it is so hot out here. And he's miserable, especially when he's in such a foul mood. He gets to enjoy a little shade while he sits and stews. Object lesson three. Not a fish or a vine, but a worm this time. Again, those of you growing zucchini or squash right now, it's not hard for you to imagine some disease coming, worm or disease coming and shriveling your plant. I have a zucchini right now that is not doing well, and I do not know why. Object lesson four, wind, a really hot one. Ironically, Jonah's anger burns hot, and God, what does he do? He sends a hot wind. Let's get you feeling a little hotter here. There are winds like this. This wind had maybe what's known as a Sirocco, And a Sirocco blows hot, hot, constant air, constant hot air, that has been found to affect, believe us or not, human serotonin levels. 
it causing depression, exhaustion, and feelings of unreality. And in some countries, I don't know if this is still the case, but it used to be, that when a criminal, um, a crime committed during the, during the blowing of a Sirocco could result in a reduced sentence at judicial, judicial discretion because that wind, that prolonged hot air blowing was known to affect thinking and actions. Huh. So regardless, this was a hot, miserable wind. It did nothing to make Jonah feel better. He re-ups his wish that he could die. God asked him more pointedly this time, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? Jonah, like a teen, knows he's not going to win this one, I suspect, but he is in it, not backing down now. I do, he says. And then the Lord says some more, you have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many animals as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but you can go home and think about it and see if you think this is true. I think Jonah wants what we might understand as a pagan notion of a god. He has a desire for a god who dishes out karma instead of grace, where bad people get what they deserve. He also seems to want a bit of a puppeteer god, one who can be manipulated. Notice how he pouts when he doesn't get what he wants, when he doesn't get what he thinks is needed. Fred Craddock, a wonderful preacher, once told the story of the prodigal son, but he rewrote the ending. And in his ending, it's the elder son that gets the big embrace. The elder son that gets the extravagant party. And as he's telling the story, a woman in the back of the sanctuary calls out. She says, that's the way the story should be told. That's the way it should be written. We don't really understand a world of grace, do we? We don't really like it unless we need it. We live in a world of ungrace, Philip Yancey says, and overall it makes sense to us. We want a system of weights and measures, a rule of law and order. We want clear lines in the sand. I think most of us actually like the labels because they help us know a few things. We like the certainty the God who fits in the box, the God who acts in ways that make sense to us, the God we can understand. Rami Shapiro says, the God of your understanding is just that, the God of your understanding. What you need is the God just beyond your understanding. 
The God of our understanding is just that, the God of our understanding, that God that makes sense to us, the God that has been shaped by the world that we have grown up in, what we have heard and seen and sung in the culture around us. The God we have heard mediated through the American church. And make no mistake, the God that we absorb and learn of is usually not the God fully revealed in the scriptures. For what we get in the scriptures is a God who is beyond our understanding. We get a a God who acts in ways that confound us. A God who sees the lines that we draw in the sand, the stands that we have taken so confidently and strongly. And that God sends a hot wind that blows away the lines in the sand and sends the sand into our eyes until we feel crazy. And we're like, who are you, God? It's one of the better questions, actually. What right, God replies, do you have to tell me what I should do? These are lives. Lives that I created in Nineveh. There's 120,000 of them, not to mention all of the animals. And you tell me, this is a line that you want to draw on the sand? They're on the outs? You're in? A community my family has been part of a long time, one that we have invested in, has decided it needs to make clear where the lines are. You see, there has been some concern that the lines are getting too fuzzy, that they are definitely being crossed, probably multiple places by multiple people. So they want to make it clear where they are. And I get it. I do. I see the point that they are trying to make and why they feel so certain and justified in their position and stance. And I'm heartbroken. Because you see, when we draw a line, when we put together our little boxes, and then when we add our God construct to that box, there are going to be people who don't fit. People who fall on the wrong side of the line, whose contours and shapes do not fit into those nice square boxes. I've moved two children in the last two weeks, one into an apartment in St. Louis and one into a dorm in San Diego. And let me tell you, there is stuff that does not fit in boxes. What do we do with the stuff? What do we do with the people? What do we do with the God who doesn't fit in those boxes we have put together? Jonah has some ideas about what you do. Most of us do. And then the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament, sends a fish, a vine, a worm, and a wind, and a host of other things. Raising questions, asking us, what right do you have?
Barbara Brown Taylor, an Episcopal priest, says, and I love this, the minute I believe, I know the mind of God, is the minute someone should sit me down and make me breathe into a paper bag. Last year, our 16-year-old son revealed he was gay. This was after we fought to keep this highly depressed and anxious kid alive for quite some time. We had watched over a period of months this bright, inquisitive, very funny, beautiful boy sink deeper and deeper into a place that we couldn't reach. He came out. He didn't fit the box. Guess what? I don't want him to. It was killing him. There wasn't enough air in there for him to breathe. People of God, Richard Rohr says, if there is a God, that God has to be at least as big as the universe that God created. Go outside, friends. This is the time of year. We're running out of time. Summer's almost over. Take a hike. Look around at the majesty and the splendor and the intricacy and the detail. Why have we allowed our God to be so small? Maybe it's because when God gets bigger, we realize we don't know as much as we think we do. We can't control this God, and that's really scary. But this is the God that we need. We need a God that is bigger than me, bigger than you, bigger than our constructs, bigger than our labels. We need a God who doesn't fit inside the evangelical church or the mainline churches or the Catholic and Orthodox branches of the church. Again, my guy, Richard Rohr, said somewhere, God is beauty, mercy, total embrace. I don't have all of the answers these days. I actually have more questions than I do answers. And I've lived my life inside this faith. I'm not getting the tidy life that I want I'm not getting a nice, neat, ordered, manageable, gift-wrapped box of God. God just keeps blowing the lid off my box. Jonah didn't get that either, and he was in a full-blown pissy mood about it. I've been there too. He was human. He saw what he could see in the moment. But friends, I believe that God wanted to move him beyond himself, beyond the little world that he was inhabiting, where God couldn't be God because, well, it just wouldn't be right. If there is comfort to be drawn 
from the Jonah piece in this tale, this is where I find it. I find it comforting that God still asked something of Jonah, even though God knew it would be hard. And when he resisted, God sent help to move him beyond in the form of a fish, a plant, a worm, a wind. Look at that, all concrete things for the most part. God raised questions he needed to wrestle with. God popped open the lid on his box, blew the sand from the line that he had drawn into his eyes, his hair. I bet he was just gritty with the dust. I bet he stunk. God let him be uncomfortable. This is the God I may not always want, but this is the God I need. The one just beyond my understanding. The one that is going to lead me away from the places that I am comfortable, feel safe and certain, into the places I don't. The places where if God is not there, I am completely lost. The God I need is the one who is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, who relents from sending calamity. The God who is beauty that takes your breath away, mystery and mercy, total fierce embrace. Theologian Martin Buber captured this God in this kingdom well when he said, this is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of danger and of risk, of eternal beginning, of that, and eternal becoming. Of open spirit and deep realization the kingdom of holy insecurity. During the summer here at Bethany, each sermon has been ended with a time of contemplation, and we're going to do that today by praying a prayer together called the prayer of welcome, or welcoming prayer, and the prayer of surrender. And I use this prayer quite a bit when I am working with directees, and every one of them hates it. And I actually hate it myself. I don't like it. But, and you're going to see why in a minute. But um, I think it's the perfect way to end the study of Jonah. We are not the ones calling the shots. We are not the ones who get to decide where the line gets drawn. May we enter the questions the book of Jonah raises, look unflinchingly at our petty small selves, and allow God to move us to a bigger understanding of God's self, where we can find ourselves in that kingdom of danger and risk, of eternal beginning and eternal becoming, of open spirit and deep realization, the kingdom of holy insecurity. So I want you to just close your eyes right now. 
And this human Jonah has shown us a bunch of emotions in this book. And today was anger. And I want you to think about whatever the feeling is that's been kind of causing turmoil and unsettledness in your life. What's that feeling? Is it anger? Is it grief? Is it fear? Get that feeling, that situation. What is it that's kind of churning, been churning in, inside? And now I'd like you to open your eyes and we're going to pray out loud together this prayer. You can supply your own emotion, but you don't have to say that out loud. But here, pray with me. Welcome. Here I am, God. All of my muscles in a knot again. Please come. Please pray this next part out loud with me. I let go of my desire for safety and security, esteem and affection, power and control, revenge and justice. I let go of my desire to change this situation. I let go of the desire to change any situation, feeling, condition, person, or myself. I open to your love and presence and healing action of grace within me.